0: Welcome in to a March 8th edition of the WEEI Celtics Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Barnaby Packer, joined as always by Jared Weiss. Jared, how are you doing this fine Tuesday? Wonderful weather we're having. Beautiful weather. It's going to be even better on Wednesday, 70 degrees. 70 degrees! And then it's going to rain when we're going to the Celtics game. How nice. It snowed on last Friday, and now it's going to be 70 degrees on Wednesday, which is absolutely crazy. Love global warming. Just a huge global warming fan in my book. Just The sooner you can get me to spring, the better.
1: Hey, hottest year on record this year. We're doing pretty well. It's it's because of all those hot
0: takes, of course. Damn right it's about the hot takes, and they're about to get hotter because we're going to about to sit down with Jake Fisher of Sports Illustrated. He recently wrote a piece about the Warriors, which was uh, top-notch.
1: So he wrote for SI.com basically the Bible on how to beat the Golden State Warriors. He went and talked to... All the teams that had beaten the warriors up it published right before the Lakers beat them. Which I still can't believe happened. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, the Lakers are on playing the Warriors. This is going to be worthless. And then, sure enough, that had, that happened. They destroyed them. But so Jake went and talked to everybody that matters on all the teams that beat the Warriors and tried to understand what was it that these teams did from a defensive strategy and an offensive strategy that worked great for them. We're going to go in depth on this piece, hear from Jake about how this piece came together, his approach and strategy. I mean, Jake's one of the best reporters covering the NBA right now and he happens to live in Boston so we get to sit with him at games which is a lot of fun and hear him shit all over uh, Sam's ideas for which guys are great uh, basketball players at dinner time too.
0: Yeah, Jake's a a big contrarian and often um, kind of stomps on my dreams Um, so it's kind of tough for me to have him on but he's a smart guy and I respect his opinion Um, so before we want to go to our discussion with Jake I just want to give a brief shout out to Reddit user Eddie's2010. He's uh, active on the our Boston Celtics, and he always does a nice recap of our podcast. So shout out to Eddie! Thank you for doing that. We really appreciate it. And now it's time for our, our talk with Jake. Obviously, you want to start off talking about the the Warriors and the article you wrote. Um, I was just kind of curious about your your process of setting that up and kind of how basically how you went about all of that and just trying to set up those interviews and what you were trying to get from each uh, each player you talked to.
2: Okay, yeah, that's actually you're the first person. To ask that question about this piece. Um, basically, what I do every month is I, since I'm a writer based in Boston, just like you guys, I write down which teams are coming that month. Um, I figure out what their what their look around what their schedule is around those games. So, like, I'd see if a team's on a back-to-back the night before, or if they're, if they're in the middle of a road trip, and they played tonight before, that means they're probably going to have a morning shoot-around the day before, um, or a morning practice the day before. A lot to do that at Emerson, which is really easy for me to get to, so if I can go there and not have to deal with the game day, um, the game day complications where, as you guys know, there's only roughly 45 minutes before a game to talk to people. And if a certain player has a certain specific pregame warm-up routine that they're out on the court during that time, you're SOL and you just, you can't talk to them. So I try to take a big picture looking at the next like four or five weeks or so ahead to maybe see if I have any other contacts around the league. If I know they're agent or something, I can start doing some prep right before that player or that team or that coach actually comes into town. And I try to see if there's any also overarching storylines between a few of those teams. So if, there's a player coming on March, like the Rockets come to town on Friday. I haven't done any prep because I've been out of town and I just closed the day's story last week. Um, if I was looking at a story about, like, J.J. Reddick and I knew the Rockets were coming to town, I would make sure I had an opportunity to try to get a question to Dwight Howard about J.J. Reddick, stuff like that. So it just conveniently worked out over the last couple of weeks that... The four, four out of the five teams the Warriors lost to were coming through Boston. Um, and it was actually just four at the time. I was ready to close the story after the Bucks came last, uh, I believe they came February 25th. Um, but I was really, really fortunate that the Blazers, after they beat the Warriors, they destroyed the Warriors after the All-Star break. They were coming to Boston the next week. So, That definitely. Obviously, with reporting always comes down to sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I was very uh, lucky that the teams came in the order like that. Um, But in terms of actually getting information to complete the story, and I watched all five of those games from start to finish. I took pretty detailed notes about um, different things teams did schematically, both on offense and defense. Um, And that's what coaches and players respond to, I mean, when you're in a scrum or there are two or three guys surrounding a player at his locker, the last thing a player wants to do is go through the motions and just ask. And they don't want to hear, you know, what's this it feel like to play against Steph Curry? Like, that guy's a professional basketball player, too. He doesn't want to talk about playing against the Warriors. He wants to actually talk about himself and basketball their business. They respect the game-planning process, X's and O's, stuff like that. So... I really tried to find specific things that they did. Like, I watched the Pistons film, and I saw that they switched Marcus Morris a lot onto Draymond Green. Like, he, he was able to switch the Steph Curry-Draymond Green pick and roll. And when I, so when I brought it up to Stan Van Gundy, like, he was appreciative that I actually put in the time to understand their game plan and ask him a specific question rather than just say, hey, what was your game plan to meet the Warriors? You're, you're probably not going to get a great answer. So I put in the work, I watched all five games, um, I tried to find different things that each team did to beat the Warriors, I mean, it just so happened that there are a lot of uh, circumstances that were different in each game, because three of them, the, Buc- uh, the Warriors weren't even healthy, uh, Harrison Barnes missed the Bucks game, uh, Draymond Green missed the Denver Nuggets game, Steph Curry missed the Mavericks game, they only lost twice at full strength, so... That came into play, but all those teams are also very, very different. Like the, the Bucks, obviously their length jumps off the page. The Mavericks have a pretty vaunted offensive team. The Blazers are a young team that really uh, that had just kind of discovered their identity of late. Um, Denver is a young team and also doesn't really have an identity, so it was really about trying to figure out the differences in each team and their approaches. And then once I kind of had a game plan of what I wanted to talk about, I was very lucky that everyone was really willing to discuss it. I mean, Sam Bam was great. Mike Bone was great. Alan Crabb um, was not someone I anticipated being a person I would quote in the story. I just, I've just i known him for a couple of years, and I thought I'd chat him and say hi, and he, maybe he'd say something that I would ask Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum about. But he was really insightful, so I threw a quote he had in there. So it was just I tried to cover as much ground as possible by doing as much prep work as I could. And then I tried to talk to as many players as I could as well. That's a very short answer.
1: It <laughs> <laughs> only took five minutes. Um, so I'll actually I'm looking at that Alan Crabb quote and I was interested on that. Uh, interested in the simulation component that he talked about. How, how, mm-hmm. how did you, did you hear much about how teams are practicing in their game plan against the Warriors, because game planning is one thing, but actually simulating the idea of blitzing a pick-and-roll 30 feet away from the basket the entire game pretty much, or switching constantly on these pick-and-rolls the entire game, that's something that seems almost impossible to prepare for theoretically and just requires actual simulation.
2: Yeah, I think the Blazers got fortunate because they had time after the all-star break. I mean, Brad Stevens talks about it all the time. The difference between college and the NBA is that there's literally maybe hours of practice time a week, let alone days and, uh, and, and full opportunities to, to meet with your guys and really game plan. It's a lot of film beef. That's pretty much what the, the crux of NBA game planning is and, and to figure out the stats. I mean, every team employs uh, league, league scouts who they send around the league to watch um, other teams play. The assistant coaching staff are all – They have their own rotating responsibilities to come up with a game plan or a scout for each team. Um, And then since the games are so close together, you have limited time to get together. So few teams actually have the chance to get on the floor and and drill how they're going to attack another team. Um, And from the impressions I got, I mean, I I wish I had talked to them first so I had had that question in the back of my mind to ask the other teams. Um, But the impression I got is most teams would just, really key in on specific sets the Warriors, not they don't really run sets, but specific elements of their offense, which is kind of what the Blazers were able to do on the court. But teams would highlight certain packages. The Steph Draymond top of the key pick and roll. Um, there's a lot of, and the Warriors do a lot of weak side action. I mentioned that in the story, how there's a side pick and roll in the right wing between, let's say, Steph and Andrew Bogut. And on the weak side, Draymond and Harrison Barnes are setting a double back screen where Klay is going to start at the weak side block. He's going to flash to the elbow, but then curl off the screen and fade to the opposite corner for a skip pass. But that's a ridiculous play that very few teams are able to do. But it's something the Warriors run like a regular average Joe thing. So teams notice that, and they have to figure out the personnel that they're going to use to counteract that, the philosophy they want to do it. I mean, every team has a different philosophy just about how to guard, take a role in general. Um, Sometimes that rotates game to game. But it's definitely something that that starts with film, and it starts with the coaching staff getting together first and then having a discussion, and then they then in turn relay that in front of the team afterwards.
0: Now, you mentioned coaching, uh, which I found interesting because the last team to beat the Warriors was the Los Angeles Lakers on uh, Sunday.
1: <laughs> With their incredible coaching.
0: And course. so um, Byron Scott <laughs> does not get the, uh, the national recognition for being a uh, an X's and O's guy or a player's coach or really any of the good things people say about coaches. But did you see any, um, the Lakers do anything that maybe some of the other teams did and what, what made it so they could actually beat the Warriors and hand them their sixth loss?
2: I mean, one thing the, the, the one thing that I think was the most uh, surprising element of all the reporting I did for my story was Terry Scott saying, we wanted, to pay it, we wanted to play at the Warriors' pace. Because uh, when you watch, like, league pass or you just throw on a game, you always hear announcers say, or on, they have a sideline reporter talk to a coach or assistant coach say, we want to play at our pace. We don't want to get caught up in a track meet. We don't want to play at the Warriors' pace. Well, Perry Stocks said, no, we we're, the, the, the Blazers are an average-paced team. They, their pace is, I believe, 16th in the league. But they wanted to play at the Warriors' pace because the Warriors have a tremendous half court defense, and when you play in transition and you get into a track meet, Perry Stocks believes that it's a lot easier to score than playing against the Warriors' set five-man defense, where sometimes you're going three-on-two, four-on-three. That's a lot more advantageous for an offense. And, and the Lakers definitely have a lot of young guys on my team that push the pace um, to do that. I think that might have been the only really schematic thing. Other than that, the Warriors just didn't, didn't hit shots. I don't know how much of that was um, in relation to the Lakers defense. They're the worst defense in the league, so I don't think it was anything to do with the Lakers defense. Um, but, I mean, no matter what you do to game plan them, you have to pray that they're going to miss shots, whether that's because of your defense or just out of sheer dumb luck, you have to pray that either they're going to miss shots or you're going to be able to make shots at their rate, um, which, of course, either is pretty unlikely. And it's going to, honestly, the Warriors, as well as historically fantastic they are at shooting the ball, you're going to have games where you just struggle a little bit, and the Lakers were fortunate enough to take advantage.
1: The Lakers got lucky where it was pretty much the only game in the last two years where Steph Curry and Clay Thompson were both horrendous from down – or just couldn't hit a shot pretty much anywhere on the floor. And
2: yeah, I, mean, I mean, I don't have the box score, but I, I think they shot – the Warriors combined 10.9% from three.
1: They shot – so it was Curry and Thompson combined one for 18 from three and then 13 for 40 from the it field. It was the overall. worst
0: percentage for any team that's attempted over 30, I think, ever. Thirteen point three percent for thirty. It's Sometimes
2: it's better to be lucky than good.
0: And and I'll, I liked how all the Talking Heads immediately said, "Well, they were they were in L.A. last night. Like obviously, that's that's what happened. That's the easiest <laughs> storyline to say. But that's just so mind boggling to me. It's just like, oh yeah, they were in L.A. last night. That doesn't mean they're necessarily out." partying. Some of them could be. I don't see Steph Curry as a guy who's like out to the strip club until 5 a.m. the night before a game. Well you know Draymond was definitely out partying. Yeah least. but that he's doing that in every city. I don't see why the LA-ness of it really changes will change his performance. I thought that was just a kind of easy cop-out by the general media.
2: Yeah I know for a fact Draymond Green had a lot of fun the night before the Warriors double overtime game in Boston.
1: Uh yeah, I I heard he said a particular club that starts with the B on fire. We won't name it on the air, but um, which which most play, most visiting players do anyway.
0: I believe that's where Marcus Smart's birthday was. Uh, this yeah, Sunday night it, w- it was yeah,
1: and Isaiah Thomas I think did that earlier too. But uh, <laughs> getting back to basketball, what what was the team that you thought had the best strategy? I mean, and of course the Blazers and the Lakers the only ones to do it with the team at full strength. Well, the
2: Pistons beat them at full strength too. Oh, that's um, true. I think their strategy um, was pretty good because the Warriors did miss a good amount of shots against the Blazers too. I mean, the the Pistons were able to new, totally neutralize Draymond Green as a, as a weapon. He was definitely a factor in their offense. He had nine assists in that game, but he wasn't running wild. That was the, that was the term Stephen A. Gunter used. Um, and he made plays. Obviously, you have to make plays to have nine assists, but he, it wasn't like he was a second point guard out there, where he was playing basically four on three a lot in the half court out of that out of that pick and roll, because they had the they had a smaller lineup. The Pistons. I mean, think about that team. Mark, well, before before they made the trade um, at the at the deadline, before they had Marcus Morris, Arsene Silva Stanley Johnson, Kentavious Caldwell Pope. Um, that, those guys are all roughly the same size, same athleticism, um, where they could switch the pick and roll and kind of neutralize the Warriors' versatility in that small ball game. And you don't have to, to beat that small ball. You don't have to necessarily play the same style. You have to slow them down and force turnovers so then – off of them, you don't have to get into the track meet that the Blazers did. Um, the Blazers ended up forcing a ton of turnovers down in the third quarter. Damian Lillard was like a freaking old, uh, free safety flying over the middle to come help a cornerback and steal an interception. Like he was ridiculous on a couple uh, third quarter steals he had. Um, but I think what the Pistons did in terms of Either they threw a bigger, quicker guy like Ilyasova on green, and they did not switch the pick and roll, and they fought through it, and Ilyasova stayed with green the whole way. Or you put a smaller guy like Draymond size on him with Marcus Morris, and they switched that, and he to keep Steph out of the paint as best he could. I mean, I mean, I think Steph still had 38 in that game, but they pretty much turned the Warriors offense into Steph Curry coming off the screen and, with the ball. And Clay and Clay Thompson curling off screens, and that was it. Well, I mean, they took out the other three guys on the floor because they focused on. Because I mean, as long as Steph's in space, um, he's going to be looking for his own shot. It's when he when he it's when he collapses the entire defense. He finds open shooters. He throws ridiculous behind-the-back passes. He hits Landry Barbosa for whatever. It's, they were able to kind of limit the Warriors' opportunities on offense and flexibility to score, because that's what makes them so, so dangerous when they have five guys out. Even when they're starting lineup with Bogut, Bogut is an incredible playmaker with the ball in his hands. So if you can limit their playmaking opportunities, like I think Detroit did, um, I think that's a pretty sound uh, game plan.
0: All right, we're talking to Jake Fisher from Sports Illustrated, and this is the WEI Celtics podcast, so we have to ask you uh, about the C's, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because in the um, in the Celtics media room before games, often uh, the guys who cover the Celtics every single day or, and or go to every single game, they'll get um, pretty excited about some players' Um maybe overhype them a little bit but Jake's always the one to come in and just say no nope, that's absolutely wrong you guys are all insane <laughs> so i think he offers us uh, some nice perspective on just kind of another view of the Celtics cuz it's it's not something where you're like with the team every day and you're not developed like at least me i don't really claim to have any journalistic integrity like i'm just pretty much a fan of the team i'm going to put it out there right now that's why
1: i'm here to balance it out
0: yeah um <laughs> So, Jake, I basically want you to uh, crap all over my fan dreams of the Celtics and give me a brutally honest uh, take on this Boston Celtics team. Specifically, how far do you think they could actually get? is an Eastern Conference Finals possible, as kind of every Celtics fan wants to believe it is?
2: I, I do. I think it's possible. Um, matchups, obviously, always come into play. But I think the key is going to be how much production they can continue to get out of the front court. Because right now Jared Sollinger is putting up some like historically good numbers. Kevin O'Connor always throws out these stats for like Sollinger's is only one of four players in NBA history to have 16 points and seven rebounds and whatever. Like he has in in spots performed ridiculously well. Kelly Olynyk's uh, obviously going to change things when he comes back, um, but like the, pr- the production they've been able to get out of Sollinger, in the smaller units with Jake Crowder at the four, even Tyler Zeller at times. um, Amir Johnson kind of hasn't really fit into the fold in those those aspects. But I'm I'm skeptical of Stollinger and Zeller's abilities defensively in the playoffs. And I'm also skeptical of the Celtics offense in the playoffs because when you have time to game plan for one team over the course of two weeks, it's a lot harder to score, and right now, I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia, idolizing Allen Iverson. Isaiah Thomas is putting on the best Allen Iverson impression that I've ever seen, and he's fantastic to watch. I love, I really enjoy going to Celtics games this season compared to years past where they were not very good. Um, but if you're able to kind of limit Isaiah Thomas in a seven-game series. They don't really have any other players who make plays off the ball outside of Evan Turner. And oh, well, Evan Turner has had a huge comeback season. If there was comeback player of the year award in the NBA, he might be the number one guy for it. I mean, last summer there was nobody offering him a, him a contract outside of the Celtics, and now he's probably set himself up for three years, twenty-four million, maybe, maybe even more in the rising cap.
1: I've been hearing higher get, than that, even.
2: Yeah, maybe he's gonna get more than years. ten
1: million dollars a year. Ten's a number yeah. I've been hearing in the market. Yeah, now.
2: yeah, maybe he's gonna get. I, I, I don't think he get more than three or thirty, but like, that's the range that everyone is talking about. Evan Turner. That is ridiculous, considering where he was. Not ridiculous. That's awesome for him. That's just it, it wasn't fathomable thirteen months ago so to see where he's at. Plus, um, other players. It's it's just fun to watch, but. I'm, I'm skeptical of their playmaking ability on offense and, um, their, def- and their defensive abilities inside. Because Solinger I think, is going to struggle with bigger players um, and quicker guys. And Zeller, I think, he's struggled at times, too, with smaller, quicker lineups where he's had to come in because Solinger's in foul trouble or coming in. Olympic obviously helps those things, but he's also not a defensive follower either. And Amir Johnson, while he's the best rim protector on the team, is obviously not the most capable offensively. He's, he's money on with the right hook. If he gets the ball on the wing or I mean on the block, he's throwing up a right-hand hook shot. That's the only thing he does.
1: And it's either going to miss the rim or it's going to go off the glass and in.
0: There's not really. Exactly. there's only one of those two outcomes for that shot.
2: Exactly. So.
0: Don't um, forget, once every fifth game, he's going to have like four putback tippins. That's and it. then he'll it's have, true. like, 12 points, and that'll be amazing.
2: That's true. So I, I just so my, my two things that I'm going to be very interested to see, because Brad Stevens really doesn't give you much reason to doubt the Celtics' ability to to, to strategize for opponents. Um, I'm interested to see how the opposing teams go to attack their offense um, and try to take out a day or at least limit him. And then I'm interested to see how other teams are going to attack their big guys.
1: Well so last year, Cleveland was able to sit down and game plan for Thomas, and they were able to trap him to the point that he pretty much did nothing until the end of game four where he went crazy exactly. but the the improvement this year has been pretty notable for him, where his ability just to pass when he gets into the paint has improved dramatically. His ability yeah. to kind of keep his head up and not just kind of attack a specific like just lock into an attack seems to improve. Do you, I mean, do you think that Thomas has made the kind of changes this season or improvements this season that just double-teaming him up high on pick-and-rolls isn't going to be enough to stop him?
2: Yeah, I mean, he's obviously so much improved this year. I mean, he's an all-star. He's been doing this now for a full season rather than a couple of months in the Celtics system. Um, but it all changes in the playoffs. It, it, it's, it's such a cliche thing to say, but it's, it's so different when you are playing – Games two days apart. You have practice time. You're only looking at one team. You don't have a back-to-back the next night that you also have to prepare for. You're not thinking about oh, I have to. Hop- the second of this game is over, we have a 7:30 game tonight. Our first bus leaves for the airport at 10:35 p.m. Like when you can just isolate your entire thought process on one team, and with the Celtics offense, you're really isolating your thought process onto Thomas, which the Cavs did. I, I, I don't know if his improvements will make dramatic changes to the Celtics' offense in the playoffs. Um, I think he will get by in the first round. I, I think... I don't think there are teams in the low... If, if, cause I think the Celtics are pretty much locked in right now to being a top-four team. Um, but just the way they're playing, the way they are able to just pull in Addison, Eric, sometimes with their depth. I mean, that's the one thing that... Everyone was saying how, oh, you know, the Celtics have so many guys that are just good players. They don't have any great players. That depth is something that wins you a lot of games in a regular season, but it's something that might not be as much of a factor in the postseason because of that game-planning aspect where the offenses get predictable at times.
1: Well, you kept mentioning Tyler Zeller. I, I don't see him playing unless there's injuries to Amir Johnson or Kelly Olynyk. Yeah, Olenek. he's only
2: been playing a lot now because was hurt,
1: too. And uh, assuming Olinick comes back healthy, I mean, he's, he's got an injured shooting shoulder. His He was one of the hottest three-point shooters in the league uh, after he had that injury in, uh, in uh, October and November. Um do you think that he's going to be able to be an effective player at least come playoff time? Because he's going to need a while to be a good shooter again after that injury.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I am not a doctor. <laughs> um, I Dr. Think, Fisher. Yeah, uh, I hope he can. I mean, it, it, it's, 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 I never, never want to see anyone get hurt. Um, it's in the, Mar- it's in the beginning of March right now, so you got two full months to get back in the swing of things. In terms of just getting into a rhythm of your shot, I think he has plenty of time. Um, but without knowing his, um, the status of his, of his injury, I can't say for sure. But if he's able to get healthy in this time frame, in terms of just finding a rhythm and the feel for the ball, um, I think he definitely has ample time to get back to level. But, I mean, he, was, he, was, he had the sixth highest three-point shooting percentage at one point this season. He's obviously a huge asset to the team when healthy.
0: I think I want to bring up the point you mentioned earlier um, about their their lack of defense in the low post because you talked about um, we've seen it countless times this season. Evan Turner being a primary ball handler handler in the fourth quarter, and if you've got to have an op- like an option that's not Isaiah late in games, you kind of want to have Turner on the court, and that basically means the Celtics are going to have to go small. So if they play a team like the Pistons with Andre Drummond, um, even the Hawks with Al Horford. Just any team with a decent five, it's going to be really difficult for them to do anything, and I agree with you. I would worry about, you're not going to, I think Sullinger's their best low-post defender, but I think, like, Andre Drummond would eat him up, and that's a big concern for, because they just don't have anyone at the position right now who's just a solid defender across the board positionally and size-wise in rim protection.
2: Yeah, I mean, they can only get by with Crowder at the four if, they have a bigger – like a, a sizably bigger player at the five. I mean, they don't have uh, a, a, a guy who's like six eight, winged by true nature who can ship down a spot and jostle with smaller five. They don't have that guy. Crowder is obviously unlocked so much for them defensively because he can, he can truly guard one through 4 but that five, man, like you said – I mean, look around, if you look around the East, I mean, the teams that are in it, like on the outskirts, Detroit, Washington, Charlotte, they all have a big. I mean, Gortat is someone who's been flipped on a lot this year, but he's had a pretty decent year despite all the wizard struggles. Um, Al Jefferson obviously went healthy as a, a mammoth to handle down low. You mentioned Drummond. Then you go to, like the Hawks, who said um, – and the Heat I have a strong white side. Like pretty much every team in that crux of the bottom group, they have a big who maybe even isn't. Good, you're not going to throw it into him in post, but you get him in a pick and roll action to get him to into it. The rim was a, with a full, uh, full head of steam. I think that's going to be something the Celtics struggle with. All
0: right, you just made me have a. Uh, I came up with a bold prediction while you were talking. At some point in this playoffs, we're going to see Brad Stevens put Jay Crowder at the five with a rotation of uh, Evan Turner, Avery Bradley, Marcus Smart, and Isaiah Thomas. And it's going to be this lineup of mini-death. Because those, I really think, outside of Thomas, are their four best individual defenders. Evan Turner has really improved his defense, and it's kind of the reason we talked about his resurgence and why he, Brad Stevens trusts him so much. But at some point, I don't know when, I don't think it's going to work for longer than two minutes, You mark my words, it's going to happen this playoffs.
2: I mean, I don't think that's a crazy prediction. Damn it! I
0: I thought I was being super bold, and then you just crapped all over me, Jake.
2: No, no, it's bold, but, I mean... Jake, you know how I I
0: like bold predictions.
2: I know you like bold predictions. It's (laughs) bold. Um, I I just don't think it's impossible. I I really do think it's, it's plausible, especially if you get in a conference final series where the Cavs are trying to maybe start they a little bit of a lineup out there that they're going to start using against a Warriors team at West with LeBron at the five. We've seen them flirted a couple times this year. They have not gone to it nearly as much as I think they should. Even with Kevin Love, Kevin Love in the aspect of where he plays now in, this, in the Cavs offense, he's not posting up play after play after play. Maybe maybe they would try to take advantage of a size matchup with him, but if, it, if it's the Cavs Celtics. Uh, finals or uh, Eastern Conference finals where you have Kevin Love LeBron up front with Schumpert, J.R. Smith, and Kyrie, something like that. I could definitely see Raz throwing Jay Crowder out there at the size.
1: So that is the exact example I was thinking of. And I think Cleveland could counter where they would try to post Crowder up with Love. And that's where Marcus Smart swarming in really comes in handy. And that's why that line of works because you have major hands guys like Smart and Bradley out there that can try to quickly double team and that can neutralize a post-up advantage like that. They're going to have to go to it at some point. They're going to, because every well-coached team throws out some wrinkle that you haven't seen before from them. And that seems like the one that makes the most sense. And it's something that they've been experimenting with down the stretch.
2: Yeah. It's kind of like the Hail Mary play that he has, that your team's gonna have stash, and uh, a last pitch resort if you feel like the lead's flipping away, or the series is flipping away, or your team has a couple minutes spell where the um, the energy level has gone down a bit, and you want to just infuse some some life onto the
1: court. Jimmy Butler, the Celtics were rumored to have been after him. I think right before this, that report came out from uh, Steve Wilpet of the Herald. A lot of people. Uh, had heard rumblings that it was a possibility. Bolpette made it sound like it was likely or it wasn't matter of fact. Do you, do you see the legitimacy behind that, and do you think that making a major draft pick haul for Jimmy Butler is the best, it could have put the Celtics in position to try to compete for a title?
2: Um, I think Jimmy Butler is fantastic. So, yeah, I think that would have been a great move. Um, and it makes total sense, being that, Ainge has looked to strike on teams that kind of have instability where I thought that's how Isaiah Thomas got to Boston. I mean, he saw an opportunity where there's a shake-up going down to Phoenix and he had access in his belt and he went and attacked and he took advantage of the Suns. Ryan McDonough now has come out and said, I regret making that trade. So it makes total sense that seeing that Butler was hurt, Derek Rose's status is still up in the air. There's all injured across the board. That team is nowhere near at the level of, co- of contention where they were expected to be preseason. That makes a ton of sense, and I think he would have fit well um, alongside the pieces that they have in place. Obviously, some guys would have gone back. I, I don't think any Celtics trade for a, a superstar happens without giving up to Jay Crowder and Avery Glass and, and Avery Bradley. I just don't think it's possible. Um, but Jimmy Butler is fantastic two-way player. He might be one of the best two-way players. He might be the best two-way player in the Eastern Conference right now outside of LeBron James when you think about it.
1: I totally agree with you there on all points, but you think even with how well Crowder has played and the fact that Bradley is locked into a good contract, it's worth it's worth condensing there and putting all the eggs in a Marcus Smart and Isaiah Thomas working together to get Jimmy Butler over to Boston.
2: It's interesting. I just had this conversation with a friend in D.C. yesterday, where if, if he asked, I asked him if he was the Cavs GM, then uh, uh, David Griffin, would you accept Avery Bradley, Jay Crowder, and, and the Brooklyn pick for Kevin Love? He said, "Oh, in a heartbeat." I
1: Absolutely. said, "Honestly,
2: I wouldn't offer that if I was him because I feel like that's." I feel like that's too much to give. I feel like that, that package is really, really good. You don't know what the Nets pick could be. Jay Crowder is honestly a borderline all-star. He's one of those guys that's going to be considered an all-star snub every year for the next Like Like, Thaddeus Young was always listed as an all-star snub every single year. He was never going to be an all-star. He was a guy who people would always say, you know, like, he could have been. And Jay Crowder is going to be writing that mix for a long time. And like you said, those guys are on incredible contracts with the cap rising right now. Um, so you can't just make the deal for a superstar just to make it. It has to make sense. The problem is, is that everyone is going to ask for a ton in a package like that because you don't want to be like the Denver Nuggets and have it come back and not really doing anything for you. You don't want to be like the, the – New Orleans franchise, where um, when they were the Hornets, to give them Chris Paul and you really get back nothing in return. Fortunately, um, they were lucky enough to have a ping pong ping pong balls bounce to get Anthony Davis. If they don't, if that doesn't happen, where the, where's the Pelicans franchise right now? Um, they got a really Not very New Orleans. Yeah, they got a very poor package back for Chris Paul. So whenever you make a move to give up a, a, a superstar like that. I mean, Kevin Love is certainly not a superstar right now. I'm, I'm confident if you were to surround him with a rim-protecting big, um, he'd be able to put up the 26 and 12 he was putting up in Minnesota again. I think he is absolutely still capable of doing that. Um really the Cavs. You can't risk giving up a guy like Kevin Love without getting back as much as you can and potentially setting your franchise back years. And LeBron has a very small window right now to compete for a championship. I don't. I, I don't think that trade is necessarily something they're going to do right now. I, I personally think Love. If you take Love off that team and insert Crowder and Bradley, that team might. I think they might have a better chance of being the Warriors. I really do.
1: Okay. So very very last question. Has Isaiah Thomas ascended in talent and productivity to the point that the, the superstar void is no longer really applicable to the Celtics like it once was?
2: Um, yes and no. Yes, because he carries himself with a swagger. Like, this is my team. We're winning every night. I'm putting you guys on my back. I'm leading you to victory. Yes, in that regard. At the same time, he's a, he, a turd style on defense. And the fact that you need to surround him with players that can overcompensate and hide his – really, they're, they are true struggles. It's not a weakness. like He struggles defensively. It means that he's not the guy on the championship team, I don't think. Um, I mean – I think the superstar that Danny Ainge is looking for, that Sam Hickey is looking for, that the Magic are looking for, that the Lakers are going to ho- hope they have in DeAndre Russell, hope they draft this year to get their pick, that guy is a Kevin Durant type who you can throw it to and get you a bucket down the stretch, and he can also defend the other team's best player. It's a Jimmy Butler type. It's a guy like Anthony Davis who can make his presence felt, and he can dominate you on both sides of the floor. A guy like LeBron who can go into Boston Game Six 2012 and just eat your heart out on both sides of the court. And I don't think Isaiah Thomas is the guy that uh, Danny Ainge was hoping to replace the big three era around and, 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 and build a roster around. And I think he's a really solid player. I believe he's an all-star in this league. He's very fun to watch. He is elite at his at his position. He is an elite point guard. But I do not think he is the superstar on championship
0: team. But now that he is an all-star, do you think he has, or his potential to attract another all-star has improved the Celtics' chances of landing free agents? I mean, we're hearing a wild Kevin Durant rumor every day just because I feel like they need, people need something to fill the void. Do you care to start any wild Kevin Durant rumors? Do you think he could uh, <laughs> ever end up in Celtic green?
2: I would never say, never to anything. Um but I don't think I don't think it's very likely. I mean, Thomas definitely has um, not like sex appeal for for agents. But I mean, why wouldn't she want to play with him? I, I he's not a guy that that would, make, that would be averse to. Uh, for, I don't think free agents would be averse to playing with him. Um, I think you need one more piece though. But do you he's think that here. now
0: he's that he's an all star like they would? More players would want to play with him. I guess is the question. Yeah,
2: absolutely. He's proven he's proven that he's going to have a long, successful NBA career. So
0: I don't see why that doesn't mean Kevin Durant's not coming to Boston at the end of this year. I mean, they got a great <laughs> young core, they got a top five pick. Kevin Durant can be in the East, easily slip in and be the man. It makes perfect sense.
2: I think what will happen with the Celtics this summer is the timing will be very key. If they feel like they are making headwind on a player. Before the draft, which let's not let's not play dumb. This happens now. Teams are already starting to evaluate their own players down the stretch. Who they want to keep, who they're going to start trying to move in, in the postseason or after the season. Um, teams are starting to figure out what their position of draft, which what, what positions they're going to try to draft high, and then they're going to start. Under, under the table talking to player representatives, it happens um and if they start feeling like they have a guy coming or they have made move, they have made headwinds to bring a guy to Boston along as a Thomas they can leverage some assets um to, to try to make that roster more appealing and then get a and then get that guy um I don't I don't know what's I don't know what's going to happen, but I feel like they will make a pretty monumental move this summer because you don't want to get to a point, speaking of Kevin Durant, you don't want to get to a point where your team is built like the Thunder, where you have so many young guys you physically can't afford to pay them because even with the salary cap jumping, you can, contracts are always based on percentages of the cap; they're not just based off of what a player's value is. So, while Evan Turner. Mike make $10 million a year after this season. A couple of years ago, that, that, that is proportionate to him making about $6.5 million a year three years ago, which doesn't seem like too much. So in terms of how, like, if, if you don't have the superstar, Isaiah Thomas is a superstar you build around. You draft around him, Crowder, Bradley, Marcus Smart. You're trying to get a, a, an elite, rim protecting big guy. You you have Kelly Linux, eventually you're going to have, like, ten guys who are all going to start needing to get paid, and you're not going to really pay them all. So you're going to have to consolidate the access the at some point, and I think that point is the summer, long story short.
0: All right, uh, Jake Fisher of Sports Illustrated, thanks for joining us. And, um, let the people know where they can find you on the internets. What's your Twitter uh, wait, handle?
2: Wait, wait, I don't get to give my hot take?
0: Oh, yeah, if you have a hot take, uh, give us the hot take. The studio's on fire here. We're waiting for you. All
2: right. My hot take is has been the same thing for three years. I think fouling because you have a foul to give is 99% of the time so ridiculously stupid because a lot of teams will do it. They'll have, like, Steph Curry at the top of the key. He'll be dribbling off the clock for 10 seconds. Your defense is set for 10 seconds, and all of a sudden he takes one dribble to the hoop and you foul him because you have a foul to give. But your defense was set, and now you just burn a foul on one of your players and – that could come to hurt you down the stretch, and all all it does is it forces the team to end down the ball. Sometimes they'll draw an out of bounds play that will even hurt you. They'll get an easy bucket. I've seen the, the Celtics do that a lot. They'll they'll get fouled. The other team has a foul to give, and then Brad Stevens makes some signal, and Marcus Smart sets a back pick, and Avery Bradley cutting the baseline as an easy layup. I only think giving a foul, to, using a foul to give, works and. Transition opportunities, I think every team who just fouls they have a foul to give them a half-court is moronic at the hot take.
1: Even though it just won the Celtics that game against the Knicks where they fouled Carmelo with three seconds left and then Melo took a 30-footer with Marcus Smart in his face?
2: Well, that's because the Knicks have Kurt in
1: their head coach. That is exactly what I was hoping you would say. All right, that's going to do it for Jake Fisher from Sports Illustrated. Actually, tell us your Twitter handle so we can find you on the interwebs.
2: Uh, my Twitter handle is at Jake L. Fisher, um, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And that's pretty much it. But I, I don't tweet as much as I don't think either of you guys, but I'm on there. I, I, I share some thoughts. I don't have as many hot takes, but I contribute to the conversation.
0: Yeah, you start generating some of those hot takes because you came out firing with the out-of-timeout stuff. I want to hear what else is going on. I want to hear your half-baked th- um, hot takes.
2: Yeah, I start. I start putting more of a stream of consciousness out there. For yeah,
0: because you, you took three years of uh, observation into that one. I just want one you thought about for maybe fifteen minutes. <laughs> hey, you don't get verified
1: um, by just throwing out garbage hot takes whenever you want. You got to be. You got to be careful and and, uh, and prudent with your tweets.
2: I think. I mean, right now, hot takes. I think uh, every player who. Every player who has even a remote chance of getting drafted should never even think about staying in college. That's my hot take.
1: I like that one. All right, we'll leave it on that. Thanks again for coming on, Jake.
2: Thanks for having me here.